Welcome back, rich girls and boys, to The Money with Katie Show. I'm your host, Katie Gaddy Tossan, and this week, I wanted to put a lukewarm medium take out there, and it's that investing has never been easier or more important than it is right now. After listening to the book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy, where there was a huge focus on the outcomes of quantitative easing, in other words, asset inflation, price inflation, and growing wealth inequality, it became relatively clear to me that investing in assets that are actually gaining value is the best line of defense we have against the fact that something you wanted to buy last year might cost 9% more now. So yeah, that's my lukewarm take. Investing has never been more crucial, more required than it is right now. Building wealth is honestly no longer an option or a preference for those who are already wealthy. It's the way normal people can continue to live a good life without feeling squeezed. But uh, yeah, it requires two things. The first, saving enough money each month that you can invest. And the second, probably the harder one, knowing how to invest. I think most people who are stuck or haven't invested yet or haven't invested as much as they should yet are finding a challenge in one of those two things. They either don't have enough margin in their monthly income to invest yet, or they're sitting on a ton of cash because they don't know what to do with it. This episode is going to focus more explicitly on that second piece, the knowing how part. But make no mistake, the first issue is definitely still an issue. It's just more of a behavioral one and uh, actually changing things about your lifestyle, whether that be earning more or spending less, whereas the second one is usually easier to fix in the short term because it's the result of a lack of awareness, a lack of knowledge. But um, today, we're going to attempt to remedy that in the next 30 minutes and send you on your merry way. But on that note, when it comes to spending less or earning more and determining which one is more important for you, maybe you need to do both, I don't know, the reality is that, yes, there are a large subset of low-income Americans who cannot afford to save and still realistically meet their needs. But there's another subset of Americans, the ones that look like I did just a few years ago, who make average salaries and then simply live beyond their means. Maybe it's the car that's a little too nice for your income level or the expensive restaurant habit that you are not quite willing to give up yet. But if you don't currently have the margin you need to be investing 10 to 20% of your income every month at a minimum, something probably needs to change if building your wealth is important to you. And whether that's getting a higher paying job, buying a business or a rental property that cash flows or starting your own business, the choice is either that, earn more, or look at your spending and figure out where you're living beyond your means. This is the unsexy part, right? It's always the part that nobody likes to talk about or acknowledge in their own lives. So I'll go first. When I lived in Dallas, I had to sign a lease for an apartment before I knew my starting salary. It was kind of scary, but I did not have a choice because the timing was all fucked up. HR was really dragging their feet on making my offer official and slapping a number on it, but my days at my current place were numbered, so I needed a place to live. 
One of my friends was moving to Dallas and he needed a roommate, so we decided to live together. He worked in finance and he made really good money, definitely above six figures at the time. And he told me when we were looking for a place to live, I don't want to spend more than $1,000 a month on rent. I'm just not doing it. He still lived in Kentucky before the move when we were finding our place. So I was the one hunting for deals in Dallas on my own for two-bedroom apartments. But his statement that at $100,000 a year income, he did not want to spend more than $12,000 a year on rent, that really level set the shit out of me because I didn't know how much I was going to be making yet, but I knew it was not going to be anywhere close to $100,000. So in my head, I'm like, crap. If this dude who makes probably, honestly, more than twice as much as me isn't comfortable spending more than $1,000, I need to get my half of this place as low as possible. So we ended up moving into a building that was only $1,700 a month, as opposed to the one-bedroom apartments I was seeing my friends move into that were about the same price, which meant my half was around $850. And yes, it was a little rundown. It didn't have fancy amenities or granite countertops or stainless steel appliances. Okay, guys, it really it really wasn't that bad. I feel like we should have saved that one for the Halloween episode. So when we left off, I was talking about settling down in an inexpensive and very nice apartment. Uh, I also did not have a car payment at the time, so I, my life was not that expensive. The moral of the story is I had the big stuff down. However, I still managed to live beyond my means. I rarely had any money left over at the end of the month, despite making $52,000 per year and having cheap rent and no car payment. And if you would have asked me back then, hey, can you afford to invest? I would have been like, no. I would have said, no, I barely have any money left over every month. I'm not really in a position to be investing. Now, I was somehow accumulating some money in savings over time, but there was really no rhyme or reason. There was no plan. And that thinking was flawed, and it cost me money. If I could go back in time, I would sit myself down with my monthly income, and I would chart out where my fixed expenses were going. I'd say, okay, Katie, what do you need to live? What is the money that's keeping the lights on? And then once we figured that out, I would have said, all right, now what feels like a reasonable amount of money to be spending on the fun stuff? That probably would have been the time that I would have noticed that I was spending more money on discretionary stuff every month than I was on my fixed expenses, and I would have immediately identified that that behavior was not reasonable. But that's the thing. It takes seeing your decisions on paper to come to those types of conclusions, and for whatever reason, I wasn't really interested in optimizing anything back then as long as the Discover card bill got paid at the end of the month. So where am I going with this? I had enough to invest. I just did not have a plan. I did not know how much money was left over every month because I was not tracking anything. I didn't have financial goals. I just didn't feel rich, so I didn't think that I was qualified to invest. I wish more than anything that I could go back in time and tell myself, you don't have to be rich to invest. Investing is how you get rich or, well, you know, moderately more well-off than you are now. It's 
not possible to save your way to a million dollars unless you are making a shit ton of money. Most normal people are not going to be able to save their way to a million or more just from cash flow. But most normal people will, if they invest wisely, be able to invest their way to a million or more over their lifetimes. So now that we've gotten this obligatory preamble out of the way, how do you invest? My goal for this episode is that you literally walk away feeling like you have the actionable tactics to take right now to start. That said, I do have to disclaim this because I do not want to get into any legal trouble. This is not financial advice. This is for educational purposes only. And please, please do your own due diligence to verify that this is the right path for you. I just want to give you a place to start if you're feeling totally lost and overwhelmed. Now, I'm not a financial advisor or a wealth manager, but I did borrow this method from someone that is, someone that does have the licenses, has written the books, has managed the money, and that guy is Paul Merriman and his colleague, Chris Peterson. Chris is the interview for this episode, so make sure you keep listening to the end. It's a really fantastic conversation, and I think you're going to get a lot of um, peace and relief out of hearing from him. So, I have talked about Paul before on this show, specifically those of you with the good memories and the rabid listening habits will remember that we talked about Paul's methods in the 401k mistakes episode, but today I want to boil down his teachings even further because he and his team have one super actionable investing philosophy that they call two funds for life. It is a quintessential 80-20 solution. You're going to get the majority of the efficacy of the more complex strategies, but with only 20% of the effort that those require. So what does two funds for life entail? Well, it basically suggests that you create your portfolio with two funds. Imagine that. A target date fund with a long time horizon, or maybe more accurately, one that is representative of the number of years you have until you're at traditional retirement age and a small cap value fund, and that's it. So let's talk about how this breaks down. Paul and Chris suggest putting 90% of your portfolio into this target date fund. And as a refresher, using the Vanguard target date fund 2060 as an example, a target date fund is gonna give you exposure to domestic large cap stocks, international stocks, and bonds. I looked at the 2060 fund just to verify that my assumptions were correct since that's likely the one I would be in because 40 years from now, I'll be 67. It was roughly 54% total stock market, 36% total international, 6.7% total bond market, and 3% international bond market. So about 90% stocks and 10% bonds, right? Cool. And if you're like, eh, I don't really want to do a target date fund because I think I can get better returns on my own, fair enough. Happy trails. But in a study of 1.2 million Vanguard 401k accounts, the ones that were invested in all target date funds outperformed those without target date funds by an average of 2.3% per year. That doesn't sound like much, but holy shit, 2.3% per year compounding over time is substantial. I plugged it into a compounding returns calculator for fun to see what would be the difference over 40 years if you're investing $20,000 per year. And it's the difference between, are you ready for this? Sliding into year 40 with $4.2 million or $8 million, almost double the money over the years by having an average outperformance each year of 2.3%. 
On the flip side, this also helps illustrate why a 1% fund manager fee can be so damaging. These small percentages over time compound. But that's not to say that you're letting go of the idea that you're going to get amazing returns because you're settling for a target date fund, right? That's where the small cap value fund comes in. Paul is small cap value daddy, and he has a lot of research that shows that since the 1920s, the small cap companies with that value tilt have outperformed the S&P 500, which are the large companies that are typically overpriced by several percentage points per year. The last I checked, the average annualized return for small cap value was around 14% compared to the average 10 to 11% returned by the S&P 500 on an annualized basis. So you've got your 90% target date fund for your domestic and international large cap stock exposure and your bond exposure, and then you add the 10% small cap value. And in Paul and Chris's method, that exposes you to more risk and a higher risk premium. This basically just means that since you're accepting more risk in your portfolio with the small cap value, you have a decent historical chance of achieving higher returns than you would otherwise without the small cap value. So what's the price you pay in the meantime? Well, you're going to be in for a wild ride. Small cap value stocks are pretty volatile, uh, and that's why Merriman advises having just 10% of the portfolio in small cap value. At one point when I was learning about this, I was like, well, if small cap value really does outperform the S&P 500 so dramatically, why wouldn't I just put 100% of my money in small cap value and let it ride? And honestly, it's because I don't have the stomach for it. Small cap value has had a pretty bad decade while the S&P 500 has had an amazing one. And I really don't have the balls to go all in on any one asset class, regardless of what it is. Because say it with me. Oh, hey crew. Just, you know, kind of fill in, pick a spot. Katie. Oh, hey, look, the host of Business Casual is coming in. Hey, Nora. Yes, Katie, let's go. Bean dog, take the spot. Okay, Sam, yep, you do the same right there. Perfect. Okay, team, are we ready? Say it with me. One, two, three. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Thank you to the entire Brew crew for helping out with that. I have a feeling we will be hearing from them again. Anyway, yes, past performance, not indicative of future returns. And we can look back at what these asset classes have done in the past and make educated guesses about what that'll mean in the future. But we ultimately don't really know. That's why investing in a few different things, and in this case, it's domestic and international stocks and bonds in your target date fund, and then small cap value in a small cap value index fund or ETF, is considered diversification. You are spreading out your risk and you're not making one concentrated bet on a single stock or asset class. And even investing everything in the S&P 500, I would consider to be pretty concentrated. So at this point, let's dive into a few other clarifications. For starters, you might be like, 
all right, got it, but how do I even begin finding these things? And to that, I'm gonna give you a simple answer. For one thing, Google is your friend. Don't be afraid to just go and search for this stuff and read about it. Like, you now have the foundation, right? You've got a little fundamental knowledge on which to build. I don't know where you have your brokerage account set up or where you have your Roth IRA, assuming you already have one, but I see people spend a lot of time agonizing over where to open these accounts. And the truth is, within reason, it really doesn't matter. Vanguard, Fidelity, I don't care. I have my own personal preferences, but at the end of the day, you just want access to these index funds with low fees. That's it. Thanks to Bogle and Vanguard, most of these major brokerage firms will offer access to index funds and ETFs for a handful of basis points, like think 0.05% or less. And at that rate, it's practically free. So all you'd have to do is pick your brokerage firm, open your account, dump in the cash, and start buying these assets. You can search Vanguard Target Date Fund 2060 or Vanguard Small Cap Value Fund or Fidelity Target Date Fund 2055 whatever it may be for you, and the ticker symbol will pop right up. You'll just do your due diligence, read a little bit about the fund, and then type in that ticker symbol to buy it if you choose that that's what's best for you. I can't say because I'm not an advisor, and ultimately you will have to make that decision for yourself. But one thing worth noting is that some of these funds do have minimum purchase requirements where you'll have to put in $1,000 or $3,000 or whatever it is. But if you buy ETF versions of the funds, you can buy fractional shares. There are also platforms like M1 Finance where you can build what's called a pie of ETF funds that you would pick in these same proportions as what you'd see in the target date fund that you look up. And as you add more money, it'll get distributed amongst those choices. M1 Finance is really cool for that. I like building my own little pies and setting my target asset allocation and then just dumping cash into it because it means that every time I add cash, I don't have to then assess what I need to buy more of. It just does it on its own. There are also robo-advisors like Betterment that'll do all of that for you, and you don't have to pick any funds or tell it what to buy at all. You'll just answer a couple questions about your risk tolerance, add the cash, and then an algorithm will do the rest. So it will diversify you like a Betterment algorithm beyond these two funds, but if that's what you're interested in, I do think Betterment as a robo-advisor is the best option for that. It really can be as hands-off as you want it to be, but If you're trying to save money on fees and you want the practice of doing it yourself, you can start with looking at the target date funds in your brokerage for the appropriate year of your retirement timeline and adding that small cap value tilt separately. The only cautionary tale I would include here is that Vanguard recently caught some heat for rebalancing the holdings within a large target date fund, and it did create a taxable event for people who held that fund in their taxable brokerage accounts. That doesn't really happen in tax-advantaged accounts because they're tax-sheltered. So my hope for the future, though, is that it won't happen again because it was a pretty big deal when it did, but that is something to be aware of. Now, if you need to listen to this episode again or take notes to make sure that you're getting all the key points before you get started doing your own research, go for it. But I do want to take a second to acknowledge that I know investing can feel scary, particularly at times like these. I know it can feel scary to put your money into something that you don't fully understand, and it can feel like you need to know everything before you start, right? Like until you feel like you've mastered it, you don't want to put any money on the line. And I can't tell you what to do, but 
I will say that typically that attitude of I'm not going to start until I know I can do it perfectly is a sign of perfectionism. And I don't want to sound alarmist, but the situation that we are in economically with wages stagnating and prices and assets inflating means that we are losing time to get into the market. That does not mean it's about rushing or trying to time anything, but it is about recognizing that building wealth means you have to have some skin in the game over time. It is a long-term pursuit, multiple decades long, that's going to help preserve and grow the purchasing power of your cash by using that cash to buy assets that go up in value over time. That's really all it is. So now I would love to welcome Chris Peterson to the show to talk about the two funds for life method. Chris, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. So Chris is the director of research at the Merriman Financial Education Foundation. That's a mouthful. Did I get that right? Yeah, you got it right. Perfect. And when I talked to Paul on the phone a couple weeks ago about this episode, he told me, and he repeated this many times, that Chris really deserves all the credit for the two funds for life (laughs) portfolio. So, Chris, I want to start with a question that you have probably heard before. Target date funds tend to get a bad rap. For whatever reason, people love to dunk on target date funds. Can you walk our listeners through some of these popular criticisms or maybe the most popular criticism and then how you would respond to those criticisms? Sure. Maybe it's the circle I travel in, but a lot of the people that I talk to aren't really that critical about target date funds. Most people, I think, really like them, especially for the bulk of investors The two things that come to mind in terms of popular criticisms are first that they tend to be a little bit on the conservative side. So uh, they hold bonds in the early years, which, you know, most young investors really don't need to hold bonds in the early years. They only hold about 10% on average, so that's not much. But really, in an ideal world, I wouldn't have any bonds in there in the early years for an investor. And then in the later years, they can hold 70% in bonds in retirement, which again is pretty conservative. I think a lot of investors would do better with a little bit more aggressive portfolio in retirement. So that's the first criticism. And then the second criticism is that they're one size fits all. You know, they're basically an off the rack suit. Now, the truth is, most of us look better in an off the rack suit than nothing at all, or left to making our own clothes, right? So uh, that criticism is one that doesn't bother me too much. And there are custom solutions out there, but they tend to be really expensive. So those are the two criticisms and, and the two fund for life strategies that I created working with Paul help address both of those. They're basically ways that a DIY investor with just a few really simple things can overcome the over-conservatism and can also tune it to meet their needs. Well, I would love to talk about some of those, especially with the over-conservatism, because I think that would be particularly the 70% bond exposure in retirement. I just was looking into a pretty deep dive into the 4% rule analysis last week and saw that I think the original analysis said if you dip below 50% stocks, things can start to break. So I'm curious how you would advise somebody to tweak around potentially the conservative nature of a target date fund? Let's definitely go there. But just before we do, I want to 
point out that there have been studies done that say that the expected return for most investors invested in a target date fund is about 2% higher than they would have done left to their own devices. And that just goes to show that young investors, old investors, were not particularly expert at doing this, especially when you look at the market at large. So I, I really don't have anything against the average investor investing entirely in a target date fund. In fact, across a lifetime, it'll roughly double the amount of spending power that somebody would have compared to just holding cash in the bank. So a target date fund just on its own is a great thing. But if you are willing to take the time to learn a little bit about investing and you want to do a little bit better, the best diversifying asset class for a target date fund, the thing that's the most different and is going to give you the greatest potential additional return is small cap value. So if you, as a young investor, instead of taking 10 cents out of every dollar and put it in the target date fund, took nine cents, put it in the target date fund, and one penny, and put it in small cap value, and just did that for your whole life, never rebalanced or anything, it would give you at least an extra like uh, 30% to spend in retirement and pass on to heirs. It's a huge bump for just this itty bitty tiny move. Um, so I think small cap value is a great tool for investors to use to overcome this conservatism in the early years and then carry some of that allocation into retirement because that's going to give you more money to spend in retirement, more money to pass on to heirs, and greater resilience against uh, sequence risk. You know, you're going to actually, if you carry 20% into retirement, you can raise your safe withdrawal rate substantially by between a half a percent and 1%. I heard that in a recent Bill Bangin interview where he said he basically recreated the analysis with small cap value built in, and it looked a lot more optimistic. And I think it's it's an interesting time to be having this conversation I guess really any time in the last decade would have been an interesting time to talk about small cap value because it it's certainly a harder sell now, but I think I've read y'all's work and I think I buy into the underlying philosophy behind it as a long-term outperformer. So I, I like that you highlighted that. Um, what was the impetus for developing the two funds for life portfolio? And how would you say it compares to some of the other financial models, if you will, that y'all have worked on? Like what makes this one special? Well, the the real driver was a combination of conversations I'd had with Paul about trying to come up with things simple enough that people would actually follow them. And then he had a conversation with Jack Bogle. Um, I remember Jack was getting older and Paul said he had this open invitation to meet with him. And, and I said, you should take that, dude. <laughs> I mean, this is a time-limited opportunity. And Jack kind of wagged his finger at Paul and said, you can't expect people to invest in 10 funds and rebalance every year. They just won't do that. Those two things led us to try and figure out, well, what are some ways that we could do something simple enough that everybody could follow it. The fascinating thing for me as we did all the research is that we found out with only two funds, you could do as well as you could do with a 10 fund solution, rebalancing every year, managing your own glide path. There's no real reason to have all of the added complexity. If you have a 10 fund solution, you have more controls. Um, Paul has something called the ultimate buy and hold, and it gives you 
half in value, half in growth, half in large, half in small, half in US, half in international. And if you want to tweak each and every one of those variables, so you want to be 47% in US and 53% international, you can do that. When you simplify it down to just a couple of funds, you lose some of those controls. So that's one trade-off. The other trade-off is that you lose some ability to position the asset classes in their ideal account locations. So in an ideal world, you'd really carry all of your bonds in a tax-deferred account, and you'd have all of your stocks in a taxable account, or at least you would have some in each probably. And you don't have as much control over that. Now, for somebody who's got all of their savings in an IRA or all of their savings in a 401k, and they don't really care about wanting to touch all of the dials, it's not a big deal. But there are some trade-offs, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you recall a couple months ago when I want to say Vanguard did some massive rebalancing inside of one of their target date funds and people that held it in their taxable accounts experienced like a pretty substantial taxable event as a result of that. And it was kind of a kerfuffle in the news about like whether or not Vanguard should have warned people that that was happening or gone about it differently. But even the asset location argument I find to be so minor compared to if the alternative is like not investing at all or the alternative is having to rebalance 10 funds every year it's like i think i'll i I wouldn't mind you know a little bit more tax liability on the bond interest if um if it means that i'm gonna get such an easy kind of out of the box solution part of that story with vanguard is that i think some of what they were trying to change helped enable the cost reduction they did too so the expense ratios on their target date funds went from about 0.12% per year down to 0.08%. so they got way cheaper as a result of some of those changes but yeah it was a surprise for people who held target date funds in a taxable account you know there's a a behavioral thing that I really like about the simplicity that comes along too, and that's that if you have to rebalance your account every year and and you've got 10 funds, it gives you all of these chances to look at it and freak out and go, wait a minute, you're making me sell the thing that's doing really well. I don't want to do that, right? I want to keep like going for the ride. Where if you only have two funds and you don't have to rebalance during accumulation, And then when you get to retirement, you're just taking your, what I encourage people to use nudge withdrawals, where you just take the total withdrawal from whichever one's too big, or, you know, it's bigger than it's supposed to be. So that's pretty easy, right? You go in and you go, wow, the small cap value thing's been rocking it. I'll just take my 4% out of small cap value. And then you go in the next year and you go, oh, well, you know, I mean, target date fund's a little bigger. I'll take my 4% out of that. It's a lot easier behaviorally. I think there's a lot fewer chances to kind of second guess things and freak out. That's really interesting. Speaking of the accumulation phase, um, I and the majority of my audience are still in that wealth accumulation phase and a fair distance from traditional retirement. Lucky you. And (laughs) so I know, right? What a great time to be buying. Yeah. Um, In this episode, I wanted to highlight your point 90% target date fund, 10% small cap value breakdown. But in studying some of your work, I've seen some of these age multipliers and things that could potentially shift uh, what you're choosing. So would you walk us through how you'd recommend people adjust based on their age, if at all? Sure. The reason I created the 90-10 one was I wanted something that was easy to communicate, easy to understand, and easy to implement. If you 
have to go to a second account to get small cap value, uh, it's going to be tough to rebalance between the two locations. And so I think it's relatively easy for people to do then. They can just invest a certain amount in a different account in small cap value and never rebalance. And then in retirement, take the withdrawals where it makes sense. Uh, but what that does is it it increases the risk in the early years a little bit, but not maybe as much as somebody would have an appetite for. And so in the book, I also outline an approach that starts with about 60 or 70% uh, allocated to small cap value in the early years and ramps down to zero around retirement that I call the moderate approach. And then the other one starts out with 100% in small cap value in the early years and ramps down to a 20% allocation in retirement. And I I did that when I first wrote it down, I said to be kind of wild and crazy aggressive. But when you actually look at how it plays out, there's not much more risk in the second one. There's two reasons for it. Number one, that 100% allocation in the early years, you don't have a lot of money. At least most of us didn't, right? I mean, most of us in those early years, it's just not a lot of money. And so when you look at the dollar weighted percent, it's not that big. And then the 20% allocation in retirement, which sounds kind of crazy, right? It's like, wow, that's a lot in small cap value. It turns out because it's so different from what you have in the target date fund, it provides this really meaningful diversification. And the small cap value just zigs and zags at different times from the very conservative target date fund. And it boosts your safe withdrawal rate, which is something most retirees really care a lot about. That's actually a risk reducer. And the amount that it increases the volatility, the ups and downs or the drawdowns you'd have to tolerate isn't that great. And it leaves you with more money unless you spend more money. So, I mean, I think it's worth it. It's, I mean, all of these things, whenever you take more risk, you have to earn it with better behavior. That's one of the things that anybody thinking about these two fund for life strategies should consider is that you're going to have to have good behavior to get the benefit. If you freak out because you've been holding small cap value for five years and it's underperformed the S&P 500 and you sell it, you're not going to get any of the benefit. It's funny you say that. I feel like the buy part is easy. The hold part is not. And so we have to consistently reinforce that. I'm glad you said that. And I know that you have done some modeling to show how the 4% rule comes into play with the historical outcomes of these portfolios you just mentioned. And I'd never considered that, that small cap value could actually be a de-risker in retirement because it is uncorrelated or relatively uncorrelated to what the target date fund is doing in retirement. But how did this strategy fare over time with different withdrawal rates in retirement? Well, if you if you look at a target date fund on its own, and if I'm really conservative and go back to 1928, it generates about a 3.6, 3.7% safe withdrawal rate over a 30-year retirement, which is pretty good, you know, considering how conservative it is and it's only making you tolerate maybe a 20% worst case drawdown in retirement, that's pretty good. It's not four, but for most people, 30 years is a relatively long retirement. Adding the small cap value at a 10% level keeps the risk at about the same and the, and the uh, safe withdrawal rate at about the same. When you add 20%, though, in retirement, it bumps up the safe withdrawal rate to over 4% for 30 years, and it gets very close to 4% for a 40-year retiree. 
There's a whole bunch of detail and data in the book. And um, if people want to go through a lot of the nitty gritty, that's why I wrote the book, is that I think across a lifetime of investing in any of these approaches, you're going to have a thousand questions that come up and it takes a book to answer most of them. Yeah. And so the book is called Two Funds for Life. So on that note, though, bumping up small cap value exposure to 20%, is that to say that somebody, so I'm 27, is that to say that if I went in and, and basically found the target date fund that aligned to my timeline and put 80% into that and then 20% into small cap value, you are saying that that would be the allocation that you would hold the entire time and that the rebalancing would happen on its own within the target date fund. And so you wouldn't then be shifting into something else later. You could definitely do that. It's a little bit more aggressive than the 90-10 because you've got this 20%. Uh, it's a bigger allocation to small cap value. One of the things that's going to likely happen if you do that it is across your lifetime, if you're 27, you've got a lot of years before you're going to retire, almost 40 probably, unless you're fire. And, Hope not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're fire, that's awesome. If you're saving really well, then maybe it's 30 or 20. But in 20 years, the small cap value will probably outgrow the target date fund, which means even though you're only putting 20% in, your allocation could grow to 30% or 40%. That's a good point. And as that happens, uh, your volatility is going to go up and the amount you have to tolerate in kind of ups and downs, the drawdowns are going to go up too. So they do include in the appendix of the book an analysis of that strategy, but it's not one of my three teaching examples because it raises the risk as you're approaching retirement quite a bit. The 90-10, the risk still comes down as you approach retirement. And you haven't been through it, but um, I went through it about five or six years ago. Retirement is a freaky time. It really doesn't matter how well you've saved, you know, how much you've saved. It, it's just this really freaky time because you're going from a regular paycheck and knowing where the money's coming from to it's coming from your investments. And I remember we'd been retired maybe three or four months and my wife looked at me and she said, where's the money coming from? <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, we're going to take some from the investments and all of the research says that's okay, you know, but but it took a, probably a couple of years, two or three years before we all kind of just looked at each other and said, oh, this is totally fine, you know. And so I think for a lot of people, having something that lowers the risk in the years coming into retirement in the first few years of retirement is really important. And then people who've oversaved are probably going to ramp the risk back up. They're going to probably just get comfortable with it and go, oh, yeah, I don't need to have 10 years of bonds. You know, I can have five years of expenses in bonds because I'm really confident across a lifetime that, you know, these equities do well for me. So it's kind of an interesting tricky thing to navigate for every everybody's different. Definitely. My parents are retired. They are in their late 50s. They are living on pension income from my dad's old employer. And they basically took their holdings to some asset manager and said, we want 20,000 a year or 30,000 a year or whatever it is from this. And he was like, uh, yeah, that's not going to be, that's not going to be an issue. But they're so nervous about it because it's, a, it's, yeah, you're basically charging down the road, saving as much as possible, and then coming to a stop and throwing it in reverse. It's like, it's not going to feel natural. So I love that you said like, you know, it could take years for you to get used to the feeling that it's okay to, to actually draw down on things. But it is a weird time to be an early retiree. So given the current market conditions, 
And I guess I'd call it like the economic outlook we're seeing right now. There's a lot of doom and gloom in pretty much every headline about inflation and about the fact that we're now going to be entering a recession and everyone is so sure of that. So given what's happening right now, would you amend the two funds for life portfolio at all? Or do you think it still remains valid given those current circumstances? Is this just a period where we have to realize that this is what markets do and we just have to hold or or would you make any changes i think it's more your uh your words about just you know recognizing that everybody always says it's different this time the great thing about the work paul and i do is that since we're focused on buy and hold investors we're looking for things that are evergreen that have stood the test of time so the strategies that that we're relying on basically tilting a little bit towards small and a little bit towards value across every 20 year period, every 40 year period for the last 90 plus years, those have done well. The worst case is usually that you tracked the market. The best case is that you beat the market by a lot. Just remember that the whole purpose of the media is to freak you out and keep your attention. There's always, as Paul likes to say, there's always the good news in column A and the bad news in column B, and you can choose to focus on whichever one you want. But what we really hope buy and hold investors do is that they pick a strategy that is well justified by deep historical analysis. My six words of advice for investors, these are all Jack Bogles, but I I love them, are buy right, hold tight, don't peek. You know, those six words are genius. If you can do that, uh, you'll do very, very well. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for being here, Chris. I really appreciate your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure. This is fun. (laughs) Good. We'll have to have you back. That'd be great. So to take a walk down memory lane, the very first thing that I invested in on my own outside of my employer 401k was VTI, the ETF version of the Vanguard Total Stock Market Fund. I bought VTI. I bought VU, the S&P 500, which was basically the same thing, if I'm being really honest, and VGT, which was a Vanguard Information Technology ETF. So basically, I bought three of the same thing, and I put in about $1,500 to start. I used Robinhood. And it was terrifying. But that money that I invested in 2018 went on to more than double over the next couple of years. And I'm so thankful that I trusted myself to just start small and just go for it. In truth, a friend of mine told me to buy those ETFs and I basically just blindly trusted her. So shout out Haley Laughlin for helping me, especially when that $1,500 would have undoubtedly just been blown on drinks and fast fashion anyway at that time. Like, let's be real. If I had not invested it, I would have spent it. And now because I invested it, I'm someday going to get to spend that initial $1,500 and a lot more than that, thanks to the compounding returns on that $1,500. So if you're feeling like you can't start until you perfectly master the art of investing, I am here to tell you that moment never comes. Even the best investors are not perfect. If you're afraid of losing money in the market over the next couple of years or because you're afraid you're going to do something wrong, I'm here to remind you, the money that's sitting in cash this year is losing a guaranteed 9%, and the money that you're spending is losing 100%. Even if your investments don't do great, the chances that you'll make money if you choose diversified, broad-based index funds over any 15-year period in history is 99.7%. And if you're really afraid, 
Try this. Invest money that you would have spent otherwise for a couple of months. Like keep contributing to your cash savings if that's what makes you feel comfortable, but start investing with money that you would have otherwise spent on a restaurant meal or clothes. Like skip a dinner out and put the $100 in the market instead just once. That way, even if your money literally went to zero, you are no worse off than you would have been if you'd spent that money on overpriced calamari in a weak martini. Do whatever it takes to get comfortable with the concept, including learning more, but learn more while you do it. Because if you wait until you feel like you've learned enough to start, you are never going to start. All right, rich girls and guys, that is all for today. I will see you next time, same time, same place on The Money with Katie Show. Our show is a production of Morning Brew and is produced by Nick Torres and me. Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia and Bean Dog is our Chief of Woof who barks at the most inopportune times, while Sam Cat is our Chief Chaos Agent, loudly knocking things off the desk whenever he disagrees with me. So, to take a walk down memory lane... George is barking. I'm going to wait for a second.